Well, good morning again. It is uh, great to be up here and a privilege to be able to speak this morning. If you do not know who I am, I am Mitch Hines. I'm the worship and families pastor here at Grace Church. And uh, before we begin, we always, uh, for the Christmas series at least, do a giveaway. And so if you grabbed a uh, family worship notes and yours happens to have this Advent note uh, on the backside, uh, anybody grab one? I put a couple in there just in case. Nobody? You got one right there? Come on up. Come on. He's got one. Fantastic. Give him a hand. We have these uh, Advent coloring books, and actually we've been printing them off as well each week um, and having them there for your uh, kids. There you go. To uh, color each um, passage. Since it's Family Worship Sunday all month, we wanted to give them a little bit something extra to do. Uh, And speaking of that, I want to let you know that the next two Sundays, so Christmas Eve and New Year's Eve, we are giving our nursery staff and our volunteers a break. So it will be complete Family Worship Sunday. No babies, no toddlers up at the hill. They're going to be down here, in here with us. We encourage you still Come on, join us. We don't mind the noise, and we love to have our families worshiping together. So with that, um, I have six children, if you didn't know, and they, almost all of them, love Lego. And recently, uh, if you know this, the plural for Lego is not Legos. It is not, okay? It is Lego, okay? They call them Lego bricks, so it would be multiple bricks, but if you tell your kids to go play with their Lego... You would just say Lego. And, um, man, my notes went away. Hold on one second. That's going to be fun. Um, but imagine if for Christmas I gave my kids a whole bin full of Lego, but it didn't have the box. It didn't have instructions. It was just a random bin full of Lego. Now, I'm, they could probably be excited because they, get to, they love creating. They could make some really impressive creations, but they wouldn't know exactly what it was supposed to be like. There's something about uh, having a finished product where every piece has a place. It looks like the box when you're finished, and it functions like it's supposed to function. There's something about having all those pieces fit together. And as we talk about unwrapping Christmas, that's the series we call this year. Sometimes uh, we get bits and pieces of what Christmas is about, but we're not quite sure how to put them all together. And so that's why we decided to do this Unwrapping Christmas series. Uh, sometimes we hear like Jesus is the reason for the season. Um, we, that's, that's great. Um, but how do I apply that to my family, right? How do I apply that to my personal life? Or we hear things like keep Christ in Christmas, Okay, and that, yeah, sure, we go to church uh, during Christmas, Uh, we read the Christmas story on Christmas Day, we watch the Christian Christmas movies, Um, but the rest of the season, we're buying gifts, we're planning parties, we're cooking all the food, we're watching the other Christmas movies, if we're honest, right? And we're just, it just seems like, how do I make this actually practical? Uh, How does Christmas affect my whole life? How does it affect the rest of the year? And so it's my hope and prayer that through the the collection of these series, sermon series, uh, that you would be able to take those pieces together and put them into a beautiful creation of what our life is supposed to look like from the story of Christmas. And so uh, before we begin, would you pray with me? Uh, Father, as we look through your word today, I pray that it gives us a clear vision for your plan for our lives. I pray you show us how to live a life that's worthy of the calling we have received to live worthy of the gospel and to please you in every way in our speech and our actions. The way we raise our kids, the way we interact with our friends, the way we walk in this world, in our jobs, and in our lives. Reveal your word to us in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 
If you have your Bible, uh, you can turn to Hebrews, uh, or if you have the church app, it's all in the app as well, and the words will be on your screen. Uh, We're going to be turning to Hebrews chapter 8, and I'd like to start in verse 7. It says this, For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. For he finds fault with them when he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, for they did not continue in my covenant. And so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. For I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. And speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. Last week, John kicked off the series by showing us how the Ten Commandments or the law revealed to us a need for our Savior, Jesus. Uh, No one can do enough to earn God's favor. You couldn't complete or fulfill the law yourself. Um, And as Martin Luther says, what the law requires is freedom from the law, hence the need for Jesus. And here in Hebrews, the author is explaining this a little bit further, and that God found fault with the people because they did not remain faithful to the first covenant. So God showed no concern for them, but then he says he will turn back, that he will establish a new covenant and will put God's law in the people's minds and write them on their hearts, that he will remember their sins no more. And if in your Bible you see it's kind of indented or, or you know, in, in quotes there, it's because he's quoting Hebrews, the author of Hebrews is quoting from Jeremiah chapter 31. And what he's doing there is showing that what God said so long ago through the prophet Jeremiah has come to pass through Jesus, that this Old Testament prophecy has been fulfilled in Christ. So then if you flip a couple chapters ahead then, in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 14, it says, For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And then in verse 18, where there's forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. What they're saying is Jesus' sacrifice on the cross was once and for all. No longer are the Old Testament sacrifices necessary for the atonement of sin. And so then as we continue in chapter 10, this is where we're going to spend the rest of the the morning kind of studying and, and digging in a little bit. But starting in verse 19, it says this, Therefore, brothers... Since we have confidence into the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. We now have full and total access to God through the blood of Jesus. We can enter the holy place with confidence. And if you're aware of the Old Testament, the most holy place was a place where the Ark of the Covenant rested, where God's presence dwelt, where he chose to make his dwelling back then. And the priest could only enter one day a year and only through a sacrifice of blood. And anyone who entered who was not supposed to be would be killed. It was serious business. 
But now we, through the blood of Jesus Christ, can enter the most holy place. We can draw near to God with full assurance. Our hearts are sprinkled with his blood, much like the altar was sprinkled with the blood sacrifice. But this blood cleanses us from sin. It cleanses us from a guilty conscience. We are washed with pure water. We have hope because he who promised is faithful. And this is incredible news. It should give us the most excitement. We should have so much joy. And yet, time and time again, this is the one thing that we forget all too often. Before you came into service this morning, how many of you thought, I get to enter the most holy place today? And I'm not talking about the church, the gym. We can enter into God's presence anytime and all time. How many of you thought about that this morning? How many of you got excited to come together and worship as a body of believers, singing together? How many of you thought, who can I come and encourage today? I would say probably not many of us. How many of us talked to our kids about how excited we were to come to service, to worship, and to encourage others? How many of our kids know how significant this really is or how really it could be? You see, we don't, we don't naturally remember these things. I don't naturally remember these things. And that's why we're called to remind each other all the time. We need to remind ourselves daily. We need to ask God to remind us, and we need to be attentive to the Holy Spirit's work in us. We need to turn our eyes away from our pride and our sin in the world and turn to Christ. And it got me thinking as we've been talking through the series of what was the response to the, the Ten Commandments? What did God require them to do? Once the, the law was laid out, what did they do? So in Deuteronomy chapter 6, this was the response. It says, now this is the commandment, the, the statutes and the rules that the Lord your God commanded me to teach you, that you may do them in the land in which you are going over to possess it, that you may fear the Lord your God, you and your son and your son's son, by keeping all his statutes and his commandments, which I commanded you all the days of your life, and that your days may be long. Hear therefore, O Israel, and be careful to do them, that it may go well with you, and that you may multiply greatly as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has promised you in a land flowing with milk and honey. And then many of you know this verse. And if you don't, just, just take a listen. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign in your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. And these verses tell the Israelites to remind one another constantly, to remind your kids, your kids' kids. Talk about these things when you're walking on the low road, when you're lying down, and when you rise. To have them on your foreheads and the doorposts of your house so when people come and visit, they see the doorframe. They'll look you in the eyes and they'll see what you're all about. They'll be reminded as well of what God has done for them. In a book called It Starts at Home by Kurt Brunner and Steve Stroop, uh, they say this about the response to Deuteronomy. Once upon a time, godly parents considered this mandate a critical priority. When did that pattern change? When did moms and dads stop taking seriously their responsibility to equip the next generation with biblical beliefs and values? In the observant Jewish family, faith was expressed first and foremost in the home, secondarily in the synagogue. When Christianity emerged, the church and parents worked together in an intentional manner toward the same end. But as time has passed, parents have allowed the church to take the lead when it came to the spiritual training of their children. Gradually, parents have become passive observers of this all-important process, abdicating their role to such a degree that many Christians actually believe it's the job of Sunday school 
to instill faith in their children. Certainly the church is an important partner, but the primary responsibility lies with mom and dad. And then they say this, what is the greatest threat to successfully passing the compass of faith to our children? In a word, negligence. It's tempting at this moment in time to think that this response that was given in Deuteronomy is just in the Old Testament. Oh, well, that was the Old Testament, and that's what they had to do to respond to the law. But if you look in Ephesians chapter 6, it says, Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. That's bringing them up, that's teaching them, that's training them, that's the response. That Hear, O Israel, teach them to your children. Same command. Or 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, Paul says to the church, For you know how, like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. And Paul's saying, He, like a father to his children, is exhorting them and encouraging them and urging them to live life in a manner that's worthy of God. It's how fathers should be, and he expected that even in the New Testament. But then it's also tempting to think, well, this is only for parents, right? But Deuteronomy is clear. It says, hear, O Israel. It's the entire assembly. Everybody that's there, remind one another. And then in Hebrews, in our text today, chapter 10, verse 25, encourage one another. This isn't saying specifically just dads or moms, but it's one another. Everybody's kids, everybody's families, everybody. And this is why church and K-groups and fight clubs and families are so important. Important for the church, important for the family, important to God. So what does this actually look like then in our personal lives? And this is the part where I struggled with the most, I think. It's easy just to, to read through Scripture and say, yep, here it is, here's what you do, and be on your way. But to really find something that's practical and tangible, I wanted that for myself as I was studying, and I want that for you. And I want you to stay with me because the truth is it looks different for everybody. But at the same time, it should look the same. And I know that sounds confusing, but the message is what's the same. The message that we have in what we do personally and practically is the gospel. It's the same for all of us. But the means in which we do that are different. That's the beautiful thing about the body of Christ is that it is a body, a living, breathing, moving organism that has many parts, much like the human body. And scripture addresses this. In 1 Corinthians 12, 21, it says, The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. Nor can the head to the feet say, I have no need of you. And in verse 27, he says, Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. And God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, helping, administrating, and various kinds of tongues. Are all apostles? Are all prophets? Are all teachers? Do all work miracles? Do all possess gifts of healing? Do all speak with tongues? Do all interpret? The point is that he's making is that we are all different. We are all unique, and we are designed by God on purpose. Our message is Christ, the gospel. And when people talk to any one of us or when we're talking to our kids, the gospel should be clear and permeate all that we say and do. I loved Pastor Roy's recommendation a few weeks ago to rehearse the gospel in your own words as a family. It makes it practical. It makes it tangible. How, do, how would I share with someone the gospel? And what's funny is, as we talked about it and asked each one of our kids, it was different. They had different ways of, of saying things. They had different ways of doing things. And that's what makes it unique. And yet it was the same message said in a different way. And my question to you on that is, did you try that? And if not, why not? 
give it a try, practice it. But the means in which our families or individuals talk about the gospel and share it will look differently. So for me personally, uh, and you probably know this, I love music and I love writing songs. Um, the, the, it's a reason why we wrote songs for uh, Awana, uh, for the kids. We have an album that you can stream anytime. Uh, it's called uh, G Kids, GC Kids, sorry. Um, uh, it's on Spotify streaming. We didn't put an album here you can buy, but we did that on purpose so that you can be rehearsing God's word and memorizing God's word through music. And this isn't just for kids, even though it says kids. Adults, I, I promise you'll like at least one of those songs on there. It's really good. It helps us remember scripture and, and puts it in our hearts. A lot of times we remember music so much more than we do trying to memorize a verse. And so I encourage you, give it a try, take a listen, and do that. But I love that. It's how I worship, and it's how I encourage others, encourage the kids of this church to worship and to memorize God's word and to share the gospel. And that's why we write songs for the church to sing. That As a team, we love responding to what God is doing in our lives individually. We believe that God is continually moving and he's continually doing things. And so we have a response to that. So we write songs for us to sing as a church. Uh, and I, we have the album out. It's available for purchase for, for streaming. But the point is, that's a chance for us to, to come in unity to sing about what God has done in our local body, in our church family. And I love that. That's a great way. And that's for me, that's encouraging to one another. That's encouraging for myself and our families. But does that mean you have to love it? Does that mean you have to love every song that we write or, or love music or want to write songs? No, it sure doesn't. We also as a family love board games. And uh, it'll be up on the screen here. That is an actual picture of our board game collection. It, for real, you come over, come, come play with us. Uh, but we love doing that. We love sitting around a table. We love playing a game. It gives us an opportunity to have conversations. Um, when you, once you start playing a game, you're kind of locked in at the table, and so you can start talking, and they can't really get away from you, right? We also love uh, encouraging our kids in this because we can teach them what it means to lose, okay? Right, because only one person usually wins a game, and so that's not fun for some people. But we can teach them what it means to actually lose well, we can teach them that God's in control, even of a silly game, right? You roll the dice, God knew you were going to roll that bad, sorry. But we can also teach them how to win graciously as well and encourage others. But that's a way that we love to do that. Do you need to like board games? I sure hope you do, but if you don't, that's okay. You do not need to do that. And then another example is we adopted a child with special needs, and as I wrote this, I started crying. I told John, I'm going to cry. I don't want to cry, but I, I had to put this in here because it's a, it was an example. For those of you who don't know the story, we were a foster family for a while. And uh, one of the stipulations that we had uh, as we started it was, we're not going to do special needs. We're not going to do any, any medications or anything like that. We just thought that was too much for our family. And you know the phrase, if you want to make God laugh, tell him your plans. And... Uh, after having some kids in our family come and go through foster care, uh, we got this call uh, of a child who was born as a twin 15 weeks early, so very, very little, and the twin didn't make it. And uh, this child had to be rushed to Atlanta. He had had a bunch of surgeries. He had hydrocephalus. If you don't know what that is, it's, it's where water just doesn't absorb. It just, their, their head would get bigger and bigger without surgery and without shunts that drain the fluid. And so... Um, he had to be taken there, uh, and while we were hesitant to go, um, they just said, just, just come and meet him. Just, just, come and, just come see him, you know? And uh, so that tugged on our heartstrings. We said, okay, we'll, we'll at least meet him. 
Um, we got to the hospital, and if you're not familiar with the NICU area, you walk in, and there's just rows of babies and families, right? Just, just rows of these kids that are they're born early or have some, some other issues. And, and we're walking through, you know, all these different families, and we walk all the way to the back where there's a, a bigger room, a door, and then a, a bigger room. And this is where this child was, all alone, all by himself. His uh, parents didn't really have any means or ways to come visit him. His, he didn't have family nearby, so nobody really came to visit him. And so it was from then on, uh, as we were holding him and as we were talking, we knew that, okay, we have to bring him back with us. We, we have to at least bring him back. And the initial plan was to work with his family, to figure out the medications, to figure out the schedule, the therapies, and all the things, and just say, okay, here's what it will look like, and you can, you can take him back, and things will, things will work well. It's okay. Um, but through certain circumstances, God made it clear that Micah was home with us. And we adopted him into our family. And is it always easy? No. There are a lot of hard days, a lot of sleepless nights, doctor's appointments, ER visits, <laughs> random surgeries, uh, medications to keep up with, and so much more. But this is the gospel. Jesus came to us and adopted us into his family when we were far off, when we were lost, when we were alone. And he's called us to do the same, to care for the orphans. And I have to say here that the encouragement from this whole body has been incredible to our family. Um, the staff, I know many times Jeremy has had to cover for me, uh, lots of times. I know that uh, John and, and Roy have been such an encouragement to us. They've prayed for us. They've helped us out in the needs. They've been super flexible when I said, I, I've got to go uh, take care of something with Micah. And uh, our K group has always prayed for us. They've provided meals for us when, when things got really crazy. And there's so many in this church family who love Micah. You know who you are. You love on him on Wednesday nights, on Sunday mornings. And you were just such a blessing to our family. And some of you ask him to come to your house. <laughs> you take him and you allow us to have some time as a family to do things that he just wouldn't enjoy, things that he just doesn't like to do. Um, so we are so thankful to this church body um, for just the blessing you've been in our family uh, through this process and through the special needs. And that's Hebrews 10.25, encourage one another. But does this mean that your family has to foster or adopt? It does not. Don't hear, oh, great, now I'm guilted into adopting a child. Here we go. That's not my point. The point is, is take what you already do and fill it with the gospel. Take what your hobbies are, your passions, your interests. What are your habits? If there are any sinful or destructive habits, obviously these should be replaced. But use what God has gifted you in or given you enjoyment in and make sure the gospel is evident in it. So I got through thinking through like some examples. How's your marriage? You know, do, you, do you struggle with how the gospel should permeate your marriage? And if you need help, we have an incredible marriage mentoring program. This is an opportunity to sit with real people who are not perfect, by the way, but with real people uh, who dis help you discuss things that are going on in your marriage. Every session will point to how the gospel can be applied to a specific situation. And it's a great way to spend intentional time with your spouse and take the time necessary to work on your marriage. I mentioned Ephesians 6, 
earlier about fathers teaching your children, but just a few verses earlier in Ephesians 5, Paul talks about the marriage. He says, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church, and that's a marriage displaying the gospel. And so how is that going? If you need help or need to be encouraged, please sign up. Even if you're in a really good place, sign up. There's so many people in the church who have tried it and have loved it and have been so encouraged by it. So don't wait until you're in a bad place or you're struggling with something. Go when it's good. I mean, it's just an incredible time with these families. What if you're single in here, though? How about your singleness? Are you meeting with another man or another woman, uh, married or not, and asking them to hold you accountable? And I know accountability is a bad word, but it really just means to be held liable or called to account. And that's, Scripture says, sharpen one another as iron sharpens iron, right? That's our encouraging one another. That's lifting one another, holding each other accountable to what God has called us to. Are you meeting with someone? How's your thought life? Do you find your thoughts drifting toward lust and wanting more from this world than you currently have? Who do you talk to about these things? Do you have a fight club? or discipleship, someone that you can go to? What about your habits? Do you have any that need to be broken? Do you have any habits that you need to create? Scripture reading, prayer, fight club? What do you do in your downtime? How productive are you at work? Parents, how's parenting going? Are you encouraging and comforting and urging your children to live lives worthy of God, or are you discouraging them? Are you shaming them? Are you just looking for behavior modification? What about encouraging other parents or other children? Maybe serving in G-Kids or Awana. You know, right now, Awana is, is the biggest that I've, I've seen it this year. We average on about 100 kids on this campus. I think the first couple of weeks was like 120 just in Awana, that's birth through fifth grade. Refuge, I know they average about 50 or more. And what an incredible opportunity we have, about 200 kids on this campus every Wednesday to serve and encourage other kids, but also encourage these parents. You know, when you drop your kids off, you get to go to, uh, uh, to uh, K group, or you get to go on a date, I don't know, but hopefully it's K group. But you get encouraged. You get to go and be encouraged by these other families. And, and those who serve in Awana are faithful to encourage you as parents, but also encourage your kids as well. All of these areas of your life can be utterly transformed by the gospel if you let them. And it's never too late. Don't be tempted to think, well, I've, I've failed too much, or my kids are too old now, so what's the use? Or, you know, it's not worth it at this stage in life. It's always worth it. Don't be tempted to think that. These are lies that, that keep you from being fruitful and productive to say it's too late or to say it's not worth trying. So you might be thinking now then, well, we've come a long way from Christmas. <laughs> I thought we were talking about Christmas, not practical applications of the gospel. But I, I want to highlight three main takeaways that we have today. We, as a church, we like to do this. We like to do head, heart, hands. You may have seen this before. But really, it's just things that we can think about dwell on for our head, something you should know. Our heart is like a, a emotional or a, where do your affections play, something you need to dwell on or do a heart check for. And then our hands, it's something practical, tangible that you can actually do physically. And so for the head, what you should know is remember the gospel. You are in Christ, forgiven, cleansed, sanctified, and being made holy. It's when we forget these truths that we have a distorted view on life. 
Let's be honest. When we, when we look at life with a, with a negative lens and we're looking through just our fleshly view, things seem hopeless, things seem frustrating, things seem hard. When we look through the lens of the gospel, our whole perspective changes. We have a better uh, actual true view of what life is all about. So remember the gospel. For our heart, what you should reflect on or take to heart is treasure Jesus. We have the opportunity not to focus on presence this year, but the one who gave us the gift of his presence. To focus on something truly amazing to celebrate. Matthew 6.21 says, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And I'm not saying you need to change anything about your Christmas uh, traditions or your habits there, but uh, accept that you put the focus back on Jesus. You don't have to change anything except you just refocus on Christ. Give gifts, get together with families, go on vacations, take advantage of the time off work, but give glory to God in those things. Remind whoever you gave a gift to that the greatest gift we can receive is Christ. Still give the gift, but just add that on there. Simple. When you're with your families, and I know it's harder sometimes with families to share the gospel. They know the the good and the bad and the ugly, and and sometimes it's really uh, intimidating to do that. But just pray when you're there. Talk about the gospel. Remind them of the real reason you celebrate Christmas as a family in the first place. When you're on vacation or traveling, talk with strangers about the gospel. You stop at a lot of gas stations if you're traveling, and you can just share Merry Christmas. A simple Merry Christmas can, can change the trajectory of someone's day. You know, hey, are you going to a Christmas service? A real easy question to someone you don't even know uh, can spark, uh, plant a seed for the gospel. Um, tell your kids what a blessing it is that you can even go on vacation. Uh, sing praise songs in the car when you go. All these little things that you can do are super practical. Uh, think about what a blessing it is you even have a job and talk about that with your kids. And if you're in here and you do not have a job, maybe you're unemployed or something happened, uh, stay diligent in prayer. Um, pray for opportunities. Uh, plead for uh, a job to open up for you, but also um, praise God for the rest that you have right now in this season of life and use it as an opportunity. So treasure Jesus. And for the hands, so we had, remember the gospel, treasure Jesus, and for your hands, worship. And that almost sounds cliche coming from the worship pastor, right? But worship doesn't mean just singing songs or giving money to the church or even going to church or reading your Bible or praying. It includes all those things for sure, but worship is a way of living. It's giving God worth in every single aspect of your life. It's living Deuteronomy 6, when you sit, when you rise, when you lie down. Romans 12, 1, if I had to pick a, a, a Bible verse that was my favorite, if I had to pick, it would be this one. Obviously, they're all good, but I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. When you think of the word sacrifice, you think of the sacrifice of Jesus, he died. The sacrifice of the Old Testament, they needed to be slaughtered. There needed to be blood. But the sacrifice that he tells us here in Romans is a living sacrifice. There's so many implications to this, right? Being dead to our sin, being dead to our selfish desires, dead to the world, but then alive to Christ, alive to be able to serve, to be able to live, to be able to have joy. And we, we find that as we allow our sinful, selfish desires die, we can then live to the desires that God has for us, and we have true, lasting joy. Our desires then begin to line up with the desires of Christ, and they fuse together into something incredible. Worship that is true and acceptable is a life lived, sold out for the gospel. 
And while never perfect, this is possible through the power that Christ works from within. So remember the gospel, treasure Jesus, and worship. Would you pray with me? Father, I am incredibly thankful for your word. For all that you've done for us in Christ, who came as an infant. This infinite God and an infant child. And Father, I I pray that you would help us to live this life that you've called us to live, worthy of the gospel, to practically live out worship, give you glory in all things that we say and all things that we do, to remember the gospel and the little things when we're at home, when we're cleaning our house, and when we're doing the mundane chores, when we're at work and and all the, the routine and the mundane. I pray that you help us, Lord, to revitalize those things, to infuse the gospel in there. And remember, that is the power of Christ that allows us to live, move, and breathe. And I'm thankful. I pray that you would help us to do that as a church, help us to live differently. It's in the name of Jesus that I pray these things. Amen.